0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. President Trump, in his State of the Union speech last night, touched on several issues that Coloradans have been talking about for quite a while. I'm thinking oil and gas development, health care costs, and the state of roads and bridges. To suss out what Trump did and didn't say that could have an impact here, we're joined by two state political leaders. Sherry Gibson is vice chair of the state Republican Party. Hi, Sherry. Good morning. And Morgan Carroll chairs the State Democratic Party. Hi, Morgan.
1: Good morning, Ryan.
0: Sherry, from the GOP point of view, what did you hear last night that I don't know will have the single biggest impact, I think in Colorado?
2: There was so much information covered. Um, the biggest thing that I heard was about unity. The president had a really good quote when he talked about victory. It's not winning for the party, it's winning for the country. And I really like that, and I think that hits home on so many levels. Here in Colorado, with, of course, the legislature being set the way it is, and then even our own party, unity is a big theme that's running throughout.
0: Contrast the tone that Trump had in his State of the Union last night with the tone that he sets in other forums, including Twitter, though. I think that any number of people would say that's not the tone he casts year-round. What do you say? He's a feisty president. You know, he's going to
2: tell it like it is, and he's going to give the folks exactly what he's thinking when he's thinking it. Very different when you're tweeting something out versus when you're addressing the larger body. We have to keep in mind everyone's not on Twitter and focused in on every tweet that comes out. But the State of the Union is something special. That is something for the entire country.
0: Morgan Carroll, what stood out for you in the State of the Union as a Coloradan?
1: Well, with the Colorado filter on, a couple things were doubling down on some failed policies with unique impact on Colorado. And by that, I mean, we heard a doubling down on the trade wars. uh, And those trade wars in particular have really hurt Colorado farmers, while extolling uh, sort of exponential growth on oil and gas and extraction industries. I think that that approach has a unique impact on Colorado's public lands. When he's talking about rolling back regulations on things like clean air and clean water, for Colorado, those have a particular impact in this state. So some of those policies, even including immigration, Ryan, where he's doubling down on the wall, he doubled down on vilifying immigrants. Those immigration policies of separating families are separating Colorado families right now.
0: Let's go Go ahead, Sherry.
1: You know,
2: I think I have a different, of course, perspective on that. In the sense of immigration, when the president talked about folks coming in legally, it was not to say that he doesn't want people to come in, it's that he wants a process followed. And of course, when we talk about border security, this is a multifaceted prong. It's not just about the wall, we do, you know, need to look at over. State visas, expired visas, we need to look at drone technology and some of the other things that also deal with national security and you know one more thing with the farm and and the trade wars, I will have to say that our family has a farm, we do soybean and corn and Our family has not rushed a judgment on some of this stuff. You know, we've been willing to sit back and give the president and Congress an opportunity to work together to see what we can do for the American people.
0: It's interesting. According to the Council on Foreign Relations, more money is being spent to help farmers hurt by tariffs than is being actually raised by tariffs. Uh, that hurt has not reached your family in particular, is what I hear you saying, Sherry.
2: It has not. And I think this is not over. It is an issue that is going to be um, elongated. We're not, I think sometimes we we look at things in a myopic way. And if it's not a now solution, people tend to look for that really quickly this is something that is going to be ongoing for a while.
0: Morgan, Trump remains popular in Colorado's rural counties, Uh, this sense perhaps of in the short term taking one for the team. How do Democrats reach them?
1: Well, really, we have to do like everyday day of life, bread and butter issues. Um, And it's rural, it's suburban and it's urban in the sense that even rural Colorado is feeling the pinch on affordable housing, on wages not keeping up with the cost of living, including the cost of health care. I think we need to be mindful of the fact that many farmers in Colorado really are being hurt. And given how much of Colorado's tourism uh, and our economy is really derived by ecotourism, Um, When we start to open up our public lands for increased drilling, we're talking about a variety of policies, not just the failed tax plan that's really just benefiting the wealthy, but we're talking about policies that actually stand to hurt Colorado's economy.
0: Why don't we hear a section of the speech that got big applause? It's an issue that you've raised at least uh, cursorily, Morgan, and um, I suppose the applause came from some in the House chamber, not all.
3: The United States is now the number one producer of oil and natural gas anywhere in the world.
0: Sherry Gibson, oil and gas development, a big economic driver in the state. But as you heard Morgan Carroll say there, so is ecotourism, so are our natural places. Is this an administration that is striking the right balance there, do you think?
2: He is striking the right tone for what he is talking about with respect to oil and gas and not not solely focused or singularly focused on just that. I will say that here in Colorado, we have 50,000, something like 50,000 active uh, oil and gas, natural gas wells here, and it's a big part of our economy. So we're not just talking about...
0: But is he striking the right balance on uh, the economy and oil and gas versus the environment in a place like Colorado? I
2: would say yes, because I would say that we have to look at things in a more holistic perspective. It's not just either or. It is jobs. It is the economy. It is families. I mean, we can't just chase out our oil and gas industry and have families be hurt. Then it's a triple a triple effect on... The social systems, then we have to look at health care. Like we talked about, you know, the cost of health care rising. We have to look at the social safety nets. So it's not just one or the other.
1: Well, my concern is that we heard nothing about climate change, we heard nothing about renewable energy, a balanced approach would be taking a look at how we wean off of fossil fuels and protect our environment, public lands, air, and water. There was nothing mentioned about clean air, clean water, or protecting public lands, nothing mentioned about renewable energy. So it is deeply concerning that when this is a worldwide issue, a national issue, and a place where Colorado has been a leader, that you could go your entire State of the Union address, singularly be promoting oil and gas, and say absolutely nothing addressing climate Change or renewable energy, and i
2: don 't think he did that i don 't think he singularly addressed just oil and gas. I think there were a bevy of issues that the president addressed. I will say, listening to the Democrat response, uh, Stacey Abram mentioned climate change, but not a solution, and I hear that a lot i 'm not hearing solutions coming out of the other side you know it 's great to talk about it and we talk the problem certainly nationally and locally. But we haven't talked the solution, and that's what I'm looking for. I
0: mean, certainly the new governor in Colorado has talked about solutions being 100 percent renewable energy by date certain, and we know that in the House there's going to be a climate caucus, so more of those ideas may emerge. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we are sussing out what the president had to say in his State of the Union last night and how it might affect Colorado with Sherry Gibson, vice chair of the state GOP, and Morgan Carroll, who chairs the Democratic Party here. The president talked about infrastructure. That's a long conversation in Colorado, long precedes the State of the Union. He invoked the word crumbling. Uh, Sherry, he mentioned the same thing in last year's speech when he had majorities in both chambers and nothing so far has happened. Do you think there will be progress in that area this year?
2: I think there will be progress. I think that we will have progress here locally. Um, Transportation and infrastructure has been a big issue for Coloradans. Both Democrats and Republicans agree that we have to tackle this problem. It's just the how. How do we fund it and what that looks like that is different. On either side.
0: Why do you think this uh, did not become a more prominent issue when the president had majorities in both chambers in Washington?
2: That I'm not sure of. I think his agenda and his priorities were set out. You know, one of the things he wanted to tackle was health care, of course. Um, border security national security has been a big thing for him, too. So those are things that he's looked at. Our military and Uh, Building up our our forces, our armed forces, has been something as well.
0: Morgan Carroll, I suppose this speaks to the question of the two parties working together, something President Trump indeed spoke a lot about last night. Is infrastructure one of those? Are there others?
1: Yeah, I think infrastructure is one of them. And I think part of why he didn't take up infrastructure, even when Republicans controlled all three branches, is they were so singularly, he was so singularly focused on the wall, he was willing to shut down government as opposed to fund infrastructure. I heard a few things in there that I see promise on being able to work together, and infrastructure is one of them. And whether that's water infrastructure, whether that's roads, mass transit, uh, broadband. Uh, He also mentioned, interesting to me, paid family leave. I think we have had and will continue to have progress, I hope, on criminal justice reform in a bipartisan fashion there. And what really stood out to me was him Really putting emphasis on dealing with the high cost of drugs. We're seeing that locally. Our state legislature, we have uh, Democratic legislators that are bringing this up. i hopeful that they might have uh, bipartisan support on that, too. But I believe he will find bipartisan cooperation working together if he is willing to tackle the high cost of drugs. A lot of
0: nodding on Sherry Gibson's part at the GOP.
1: Yeah. So
2: there is a lot of agreement and the issues that Morgan just mentioned. But I will say the wall was not, if you recall, it was not his first uh, priority when he came into office. He was looking at some other stuff. And so
0: uh, – Though immigration featured prominently in his first executive
2: orders. It, it did. Orders. So did health care. Health care featured prominently as well. And I think, you know, you can only get so much done. There is only so much time and you have to prioritize. And I think he's put his priorities forward.
0: Okay. In just the last few seconds, are we headed towards another government shutdown in your prognostication? Morgan Carroll?
1: Well, if Democrats have anything to do with it, no. Uh, We weren't in support of the first shutdown that was there. So um, I think this is no way to fund a government. I think holding federal workers uh, hostage over an ideological campaign promise is reckless. And uh, if we have anything to do with it, it should never happen again.
0: Sherry Gibson?
2: I don't think that we're anyone's looking forward to a, another government shutdown. I well, that, s-
0: that, that's not a bold statement. I, <laughs>
2: I will say that... Um, it, it's not an ideological promise. It is about our border security. You saw at the State of the Union, you saw police officers who had been injured in the line of duty. You had heard names of folks who had been killed, family members who are no longer with us. So we're talking about the difference between life and death and not just merely having the notion of border security. And, you know, this president cares deeply about this country.
0: I'll say that uh, studies have shown that immigrants tend to actually commit crimes at a lower rate than the general population, which is a fact that does not always emerge in these conversations. But thanks to both of you for being with us. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you. Sherry Gibson, vice chair of the Colorado Republican Party. Morgan Carroll chairs the state Democratic Party. The story of a Colorado jogger who survived an attack this week by suffocating a mountain lion has gone viral. The story hits particularly close to home for Andy Peterson. He lives in Tennessee now, but 20 years ago, he had his own encounter with a mountain lion in Roxborough State Park, south of Denver. Hi, Andy.
4: Hello, Ryan. Thank you. Appreciate you.
0: I want to begin by saying that according to Parks and Wildlife, Mountain lion attacks are rare. In the last 30 years there have been 16 with just 3 fatalities. Uh of course you're one of those 16. What kinds of memories did this latest incident bring back for you?
4: <laughs> yeah, the my heart goes out to him. You know, I don't I don't have his name, but when I saw the story my heart goes out to him and I can only pray that uh fast healing and uh, that he's able to just pause and step back and realize, you know, the second chance that he, God gave him, and he can just grab onto his family a little closer.
0: That's what it felt like to you, a second chance at life.
4: Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, God's grace is why we're talking today. And, and, you know, uh, I've, I've tried to just use this most terrifying encounter of my life. It, I was 24 years old, and almost twenty, almost thirty minutes wrestling a mountain lion. You know, uh, about 110 pound female was was up there, three miles in the mountains. You could six bites on top of my head. You could hear the raking sounds. You know, a big laceration on my forehead, seven eight inches inches uh, from the teeth. The claws popped all into my neck, and you know, the razor sharp claws. And there was no one around, and I was just hoping, please, please, somebody be up here. And there was nobody, nobody around, and. It it was the strength of these animals are incredible, just absolutely incredible.
0: Let me just just pause you for a moment, because I am trying to wrap my head around the fact that this lasted for 30 minutes with this cat.
4: Now, part of that was a stare-off for about five to seven minutes, okay. uh, and, then, and then we were face-to-face, and, and you know the line, the head came above my waist, and we kind of switched spots on the trail and immediately jumped on the uphill side to get the advantage, and it leaped, launched, and slammed into my chest. Thankfully, I got it back on my feet it launched again and missed, and 90 yards down the trail we were running, and I dropped down a little three-foot drop in the trail, same, same eye-to-eye, and with that, he launched with such force and slammed into me, and we were, went ten, 10 feet down the trail, snapped two 3-inch diameter trees off like toothpicks, and landed down, you know, tumbled down the, the, the mountainside there. And the bottom of the, the back of the lion slammed up against this bush. The claws were all in my necks and uh, on each side of my neck. Bottom jaw and the top of the forehead, the top of the jaw and the back uh, part of the head, and bit twice. I could look right down this lion's mouth. You could see the tooth, and I'm just kind of almost curled up as a ball, just doing everything I can and, and every strength that I had to to fight this thing off. They're they're such powerful machines. And uh, if you took took hundred pounds in your mouth, Ryan, and ran a football field and jumped onto a basketball rim, uh, which is ten feet tall, with that weight in your mouth without using your hands, this is the capabilities of these animals. So I'm incredibly grateful that this man survived because, Mm. uh, you know, it it could have gone a lot worse. I mean, these are almost top of the food chain here.
0: So Monday's attack occurred at Horsetooth Mountain Park in Larimer County. Colorado Parks and Wildlife spokeswoman Lauren Truitt says people ought to be way more concerned about getting attacked by a dog than a mountain lion. But it does seem like sightings of cougars are on the rise. Let's listen.
5: It's a combination of an increased population, more people enjoying the backcountry, and then probably some of it is a
4: higher deer population in our cities.
0: You're a former park ranger, I'll say. That was your line of work when you were attacked. And you say, indeed, that deer are a favorite food source for mountain lions, and they can track them over extreme distances.
4: Oh, sure. Mountain lions, they, they could have a range of 50 to 150 miles. Usually they're kind of solo. They've been seen, you know, uh, paired up or, or, you know, with the cub or with the, with the young ones, with, with the parents, kind of roaming territorial animals. Uh, but they've, they've tracked them from Minnesota to Maine. Uh, I speak all over the country, and, and I have people send me trail cams all the time. So I know some, some states have, have trouble the authorities have trouble uh, sharing with the public. Yeah, there's mountain lions here, and I just wish they would be able to do that, and uh, you know, um, so people are at least aware, so they at least can prepare for maybe in a, in a possibility that this, you know, this could happen if they're out hiking or or biking or or you know camping or whatever it may be, you know. Um, the the this one that attacked me uh that following january it was it was right there in green mountain um before you get into the the foothills and the mountains it it was right there and we, they put two darts on it and we got to catch it in the tarp and I almost felt sorry for the animal because I don't blame the, I don't blame the animal for the attack at all. You know, mm. uh, I'm kind of in its territory, and it's trying to survive just like I was. Uh, unfortunately, our paths crossed, and well, scientifically, you know, whether I was food or competition or felt threatened. And that's you know, spiritually, you know, I, I thank the good Lord that uh, He brought this mountain lion in my path because it 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 made me pause and restore. My family relationships and, and got me off the drugs and kind of gave me a new purpose in life. And now I live I live for Christ and I live to put a smile on other people's face and inspire. You know, I don't, I don't gonna... know what people would have seen on that trail. I know what I saw, Ryan. I know what I experienced. And that peace was unlike anything I've ever felt running down that mountain when I saw, when I saw that face.
0: The peace.
4: When I was running down that mountain, I had about three miles to go. And blood was going all over the place, and I was running terrified, hoping this lion ain't chasing me once I got away. And I got away by poking it in the eye and stabbing it in the head, and it let go enough, and I took off down that mountain as fast as I could. And I'm looking back the whole way, and the last mile of this trail is where my, where my life truly changed. And it, and it did an L-shape, and I cut around the corner of that L. big set of ponderosa pine trees, kind of shaded the trail. And that corner tree, when I tur- ran around that corner, I looked back, and sure enough, there's that mountain lion staring right at me again. I did about two more steps and realized, Ryan, if I don't turn around, the, all of that fight, all of that never give up, all that fight um, that I did earlier was for nothing. And when I turned around again, Ryan, I didn't see this mountain lion. I saw this transparent face of Jesus, but it was the peace that I felt was unlike anything I've ever felt in my life. The immediate fear of that mountain lion was gone.
5: Goodness. I didn't
4: want to leave that at all. I don't know what you would have seen or felt, but I know exactly without question uh, what I felt. And I knew I want to go. just want to say that, want to go.
0: that the Mountain Lion Foundation provides tips on what to do if you encounter one. Uh, and those tips include to maintain eye contact, not to run away or run past or turn away from the cat, you don't crouch or bend down. Instead, you should make yourself seem as large as possible. Gosh, I wonder how feasible all those tips are when you're suddenly the face-to-face. The gentleman that
4: escaped did, did did perfect. He fought back. He fought with every ounce that he had to fight back. You know, he didn't give up. And, and yeah... Um, you know i'm 5'6" i can only make myself look at, <laughs> look so big you know back when my attack happened we didn't have internet or phones and there was a felony if you carried a firearm well that, that's crazy i guarantee you i'm going to carry now and protect what god's blessed me with and but i will fight back i'll go for the eyes i'll go for the throat i'll go for the weak spots you know this is my life you know i i, I want it um you know and uh, so yeah if if this animal or something happens you know i'm not going to just stand there and curl up uh, I'm going to fight with every every ounce I have, just like thankfully this gentleman, you know, had the instinct to do, um, to fight back, to go for the eyes, to to make yourself look. As soon as these animals realize they don't have the advantage, they will step back, and they will. If they know they have the advantage, then they they're, they're going to keep they're going to keep going for it, and they're going to sever the spine and bust the vertebrae. They're going to go for your head area and neck area.
0: Well, uh, we're going to take a break. And then I, I want to talk to you, Andy Peterson, about how this changed your life, because there is a spiritual element that you have hinted at for sure. Andy Peterson is our guest. More than 20 years ago, he survived a mountain lion attack in Colorado. He's a former park ranger. And he says his life didn't really begin until his brush with that kuma. We're speaking in light of a recent attack in which a man suffocated a puma to escape. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.
3: Fixing Congress is a tall order, but something that Colorado might show one place to start. I think the
0: United States Congress could use a gavel amendment.
3: I'm Sam Brash, host of CPR's politics podcast, Purplish. We have a new episode about one very important Colorado rule, that every bill gets a hearing and a vote. Bill 1031 passes. uh. Bill 58 fails. What it's meant here and whether something like it could ever help that whole mess in D.C. Purplish, wherever you get your
0: podcasts. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. And let's return for a few more minutes to my conversation with Andy Peterson. He's one of the very few people to be attacked by a mountain lion in Colorado. And we wanted his perspective after a jogger was attacked this week at Horsetooth Mountain Park. And Andy, before the break, you made reference to the fact that the the cat came back into your life. In other words, you got a sort of second encounter, though the circumstances were much different. Just briefly tell us about
4: that. Yeah, he was found in Green Mountain, and uh, we put a couple darts in him, or Division of Wildlife did, and you know, and and got to brush my hand on its side, and it had a knife knife wound, about a one inch scar on top of its head. The broken paw kind of healed; uh, you could tell it was broken and rehealed over the winter. It was about a hundred and ten pound female, and the right eye was missing. Well, I don't blame this animal at all. You know, I'm actually thankful for this animal, uh, for kind of just uh, get me off my 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 old drug days, if you will, the living for myself. I, I'm very thankful for this animal. And uh, I said, you know, if it's healthy, release it. And They let it go forty miles southwest of Denver later that day. Uh, and were and all happened. the
0: were all the injuries that you described ones you'd inflicted in the fight?
4: All of that is is yeah. I had uh, set a record, uh, love it or not. Uh, about seventy four staples in my head to close the two feet of bite marks. They couldn't shave my head uh, cause all the roots would have come out. And, uh, I guess the surgeon in 20 years working ER, he forgot to do a pre-op photo. So <laughs> no red mask, you know, and, and, uh, with, with the, with the blood, but, uh, yeah, it, it was, it was three months of, of not washing your hair and, and just trying to heal and, and, uh, seeing what the next step in life would be. And, and then, I know my dad. Th-
0: then the injuries that you described on the cat, were those the ones you'd inflicted?
4: It, 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 yes. I mean, I, okay. uh, when I, I yep. Yeah, the thumb and the eye, I mean, I was back behind the eyeball and everything. So, you know, when I left and ran, started running down this trail, you know, the eye was all gray and mushy. The, the side was all, you know, the line was just kind of 10 feet down the cliff. Um, so, the cliffs there on the mountainside. Here
0: in Colorado, Parks and Wildlife received some backlash after the agency euthanized five mountain lions in Glenwood Springs. Those animals were reportedly stalking people and pets in a neighborhood. Spokeswoman Lauren Truitt says there are many factors that go into whether an animal is relocated or euthanized.
4: It is the last thing our officers want to do, and one of the
5: hardest decisions they'll ever have to make. But it really comes into play of looking at the dynamics of where we need to move these animals, how many animals
4: are already in that space, and is there enough food, shelter, and water to support more additional animals in that area?
0: There is also advice not to go out hiking or jogging alone, to have some reinforcement. I wonder if that's a decision you'd make again, over again, if you could, because I think you were out alone.
4: Well, I was alone, but uh, I'm not going to, you know, let it uh stop my life and enjoying, you know, my life, you know, not at all. You know, I'll, I'll be aware of it and and aware of my surroundings and and again, you know, I'll, I'll 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 carry. You know, I know people don't like that, but I'm not a criminal. I'm not going to go out and hurt somebody, but I will protect me and my family and and others if I see them being harmed by, all, you know, by evil. Absolutely. And and you know, and I mentioned that that piece running down uh, the mountain. My dad and I never got along because the other story of this is this all restored me and my dad's relationship as well. Uh, he came out in the hospital, and whether I wanted to hear it not, or not, you know, he was Christian for 10 years. He started talking about uh, this peace that he had with his best friend, Lord and Savior Jesus. And I said, I don't even want to hear this, but mm-hmm. I knew now what he was talking about about that peace and when i finally said no more living for my my myself I want, i'm going to live to help others and put a smile on each other's face and hopefully they can grab something from this story and better themselves their lives their families their relationships you know uh, if they can do that then 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 the, you know the bigger picture here is is uh, Rising tide lifts all boats. You know, we're all different. We all got different ideas, but I'm not going to shove it in somebody's face. Here's the story. I hope you can take something from it and, and, you know, inspires you to do better. You indeed
0: went into ministry after this. It's perhaps no surprise that you have named it Lion King Ministries. (laughs) Andy, thanks so much. He is the head of Lion King Ministries. And after a recent mountain lion attack on a jogger in Larimer County, Andy Peterson talked to us about his encounter in 1998 in Roxborough State Park. The youth suicide rate is especially high in Colorado, as we've been reporting, and we're on the lookout for solutions. Here's one that has some potential. In fact, the state is adopting it. The program encourages teens to ask for help by doing something that comes naturally to them, texting program's called Below the Surface. Kirk Woundy helped design it. He's with the National Alliance on Mental Health in Colorado Springs. And Kirk, welcome to our program. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You started Below the Surface in El Paso County in 2017 after a rash of teen suicides. And uh, indeed, it encourages teenagers in crisis to reach a text line. What's difficult or maybe just different about trying to reach teenagers? Well,
3: I think teens are um, are an especially difficult time of life. I mean, most of us would probably say that we had our struggles during our teen years. And there is a big disconnect or difference, I think, between what maybe we experienced as teenagers even 10, 15, 20 years ago and what teenagers are, are going through now in regard to dealing with social media and and just some of the pressures that come with knowing that it's difficult to get into—it's increasingly difficult to get into, you know, high-tier schools. And, um, and there's just a sense, I think, that there's, there's a lot that, that adults maybe just don't quite understand about what life is like today for somebody who's 15, 16 years old.
0: And so you have to reach teens with a, a message, I guess, of understanding that they, that they trust, that they think is authentic.
3: Right. Teens today, and this goes back to them being so immersed in media of various types, you know, they're really savvy when it comes to looking at a campaign or an advertisement and knowing whether it's something that, you know, is really resonant or if it's something that maybe is trying too hard and doesn't, you know, come from the same place where they're coming from. So. Um, So, yeah, authenticity is a a huge key and really the only way you can kind of tap into that, we think, is to be able to, to talk with teens themselves and to get to know them better.
0: Yeah. One of the first things you did was turn to teens for advice. This is Chad, a teen who is in your focus group and was pleasantly surprised that teens actually got a voice.
3: And it was really gratifying to know that people who have been affected by suicide and depression and anxiety got to put in what they thought was necessary.
0: And so with teens' input, you start to craft a message. I'll say that Colorado already had this text crisis crisis line. Uh, It's round the clock, connects you with a real counselor for free. But people weren't using it much. Teens are known for texting, and that made you wonder, you know, what was the problem? Uh, were, Were teens reluctant to text about their most serious concerns, though? Like, what did they tell you about that?
3: What they told us was pretty fascinating. They, they told us that they'll text about just about anything. That they recognize that maybe for people of other generations, it's hard to imagine kind of opening up about some of your more difficult issues or problems via text. But that that's kind of what they've grown up with. That's what they know. And in fact, they're more often comfortable doing that by text than they are in face-to-face conversations. So when we cool. heard that, we felt especially good about this idea of, um, of trying to promote the use of this text line to youth in El Paso County.
0: So your campaign below the surface is largely driven by posters that go into schools. It's low tech, I suppose, in that sense. Uh, one of these posters says, my good grades. But below that in smaller print, it says, are never good enough. Uh, another says in bold, I have friends. And below that, it says, that don't really get me. It's a kind of visual representation of the idea that below the surface, things are not fine. Uh, How does that reflect what you heard from teens?
3: We heard that what they experience is a real kind of fluidity, I guess, in their day-to-day emotions and really in the the day-to-day reality that they live. And for this campaign to be resonant, they wanted it to kind of reflect that complexity um, you know, it's true, again, I think of a lot of us that, you know, we might go along feeling just fine, uh, you know, in a given moment. And then something happens and suddenly you start to really doubt yourself or feel like you don't know what the next step is that you should take. And maybe you don't know where to turn to get help. So it was really in hearing that that we kind of helped figure out what we wanted the the theme, I guess, of the campaign to be and really what a key might be to to providing that kind of authentic messaging that we were really hoping to provide and hoping to connect teens with.
0: It also occurs to me that below the surface speaks so well to life on social media. Like, you can be posting these beautiful photos of how fabulous your life is, you know, and how gorgeous your food is, and how pretty your friends are, and how much fun you're all having. And yet, below the surface of an image like that might dwell something that 's much more painful
3: sure, and you know there 's a lot of uh, talk about that it seems these days where people have become aware that what happens on social media is that you get friends or acquaintances kind of putting forth the the vision that they would like others to have and to believe is uh, is kind of their life and um, and it's you know, it's kind of natural, right? I mean you you want to uh, if you're in a community of people, you want to to sort of have them um, think of you as successful or pretty or whatever it might be. Um, and it's it, while it's understandable, it's also dangerous, especially if you you know spend a lot of time on social media and consume you know those kinds of messages a lot. Um, It can definitely leave somebody who's maybe having a bad day feeling like, well, I'm just, there's something wrong with me. Mm. And what we want to communicate is that there's really, um, it's usually not that
0: there's something wrong with you. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're on the lookout for solutions when it comes to the youth suicide rate in Colorado. And one idea out of El Paso County is actually being adopted statewide. Below the surface is a campaign that encourages kids to text a counselor if they are dealing with thoughts of suicide or depression. Uh, It has had some success in El Paso County uh, and, as I said, is is being tried statewide. Um, So kids may be very good at putting on a brave face to parents, to counselors. They'll say everything is fine. Uh, And as you've told us, they may open up via text. So let's hear from Chad again.
3: I was actually really surprised that it would immediately go to a person. I thought, much like Safe to Tell, I thought it would be an automated kind of um, give me your issue and we'll get back to you as soon as we can. But no, it's like as soon as you send that text, you're going to be transferred to a person.
0: He references Safe to Tell. That's the anonymous tip line set up after the Columbine High School shooting. But with below the surface, you're immediately transferred, as he says, to a person, to a counselor. I wonder, though, do parents and others get notified that you've reached out? Well, one
3: of the things that sets this resource apart is the promise of confidentiality to the texter, unless there's an immediate safety risk to that person or to somebody else. So this This um, resource is run by, or is part of Colorado Crisis Services, which is a a statewide initiative that came out after the Aurora Theater shootings back in 2012. Um, And so, you know, as part of that system, uh, if a counselor winds up... On, uh, in a text conversation with somebody who who really does pose a safety risk, then they will reach out to law enforcement um, or to to parents or to both to try to um, kind of bring bring that situation you know into um, into control. But um, what we're really trying to do is to get upstream of those crisis situations and have and encourage people to text and teens to text even when they're just having a hard time with friends or with academics or maybe they're having a fight with their parents um where suicidality isn't necessarily on on the table um but they need help just kind of getting through a situation so um we really kind of promote that confidentiality piece as one of the strengths of this this text line and and we hope that that people respond in part because of that
0: Kirk, thanks so much for being with us. Kirk Woundy with the National Alliance on Mental Illness in Colorado Springs. He helped create Below the Surface to reach teens in El Paso County, encourage them to seek help through a crisis text line. And its success there has led Colorado to adopt the campaign statewide. To use it, you text TALK to 38255. We'll have information later today at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters. Denver's mayor has proclaimed Friday Neil Cassidy Day. That's when the city celebrates its self-described unnatural sun with the 10th annual Neil Cassidy Birthday Bash. Cassidy, of course, was a huge influence on beat culture, inspiring Jack Kerouac's character Dean Moriarty in 1957's On the Road. Let's learn more about Cassidy from Heather Dalton. She made a documentary about his time in Denver. Heather, welcome to the show.
5: Thank you so much for having me, Ryan.
0: How did you become interested in in Neil Cassidy?
5: I think growing up in Denver, there was something that whispered to me that Denver had a great literary history that hadn't been celebrated as much as I thought it should be. Um, Reading on the Road was a rite of passage out of high school, and I loved Kerouac's words, but I became a little bit more obsessed with the character of Dean Moriarty and how he saw and revered Denver as a city. And so it just kept nagging at me that this story needed to be told about his life growing up in Denver. Uh, he was a vagrant son that grew up on Larimer and Market Streets, basically the run of the city at a small child that shouldn't be exposed to a lot of things at the time in Depression era Denver. And so through the journey, I, I learned a lot about Neil Cassidy, but also the city of Denver itself.
0: Yeah. I mean, Cassidy was born in Salt Lake in, in 1926, but he, he grew up in Denver in gosh extreme poverty and his formative years were traumatic i mean he was he was beaten as you explore in the film and you know this we're not talking about the uh, nuclear family here
5: that's correct there was a lot of uh, a lot of people that would take advantage of a young child left to his own devices in basically what was denver's skid row at the time his father was an alcoholic who would work when he was sober uh, enough to uh, keep them in and out of flop houses. His mother was emotionally absent with several other children to take care of. And so Neil basically raised himself, but there was always a quest for knowledge, a quest for betterment. So he spent a lot of his time at the Denver Public Library. Uh, He wanted to advance himself. And even at a young age, I think he recognized that the written word was going to be his savior.
0: He attended Ebert Elementary School. And Neil Cassidy wrote a book about his early life in Denver, though it was published after his death. It's called The First Third, and you have excerpts of it in the film. Let's listen to a clip where Cassidy talks about getting up in the morning in time to get to Ebert Elementary. There happened to be no clock, so I relied on the one on the Daniels and Fisher Mammoth Tower to wake me for school. Or at least I think this is what woke me. Because as it boomed 7 a.m. down to me, I always opened my eyes and from under the unwashed blankets, stuck an alert head into our room's nippy air. Fun to think that if you look at the Daniels and Fisher Tower, you can imagine Neil Cassidy getting up for school. Uh, that's read by Denver poet and musician Polly Lipman. Uh, so Cassidy ends up going to East High School, and he meets a teacher there, Justin Briarly. Uh, who is Justin Brierly?
5: Justin Brierly was a great patron of the arts an amazing teacher from all accounts to a lot of his students that i talked to he had taken a lot of young men that he had felt were potentially at risk and and tried to help them and and put them and neil was one of these young men including hal chase ed white who was tim gray in uh Jack Kerouac's On the Road, who's a prominent Denver architect now. Huh. Um, and he got a lot of these young men into Columbia, and that was the hope for Neil as well. And so Neil had gone to New York and subsequently had met uh, Allen Ginsberg and Jack Kerouac through his friend Hal Chase via Justin Briarley's, uh advice that they all head east and, and get educations and come back to Denver.
0: So th- this is so interesting. This high school teacher in Denver winds up being really rather, rather pivotal in creating the, the beat generation in some way. I mean, would you say that? Most definitely. Yeah. Most
5: definitely. And, and yeah, he inadvertently put all these people together.
0: What do you think Kerouac saw in Cassidy?
5: I think from what I understand of Kerouac is he was obviously a brilliant man, but very shy. And Cassidy was life on fire. I think they were both um, fire and ice. They both saw in each other what they wanted to be but couldn't actualize. Whereas Cassidy was the living embodiment of electricity. But Kerouac was the intelligence and the grace and the quiet fortitude that he lacked. So they were kind of drawn together like magnets in that sense.
0: You interviewed Neil Cassidy's wife, Carolyn, and their three children. And I think what your film does so beautifully is it really gives us a sense of Neil Cassidy beyond the Dean Moriarty character that we associate with him. You know, that that he is, yes, he stole many cars as a young man. and, (laughs) And yes, he grew up in abject poverty. But he was, he wanted to do right, he wanted to be better. Do you think that's true?
5: Almost oh, definitely. And that was probably the most shocking thing about going through this process and doing a lot of the research about him because he is so iconic. And um, I think a lot of the misconceptions about him is it's, he's almost portrayed in a one-dimensional surface yeah. uh, as an American icon, but he was truly a tormentor.